may we look to you in the darkness, in our sorrow, in our pain. God, may we look to you and see that you are good. God, may we look to you and find grace. May we look to you and see your mercy. May we taste and see that, God, you are good. And you may pray. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. It can be found starting on page 819 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 13, 24 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's Mike. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. My little coffee thing here is pretty loose. It's going to be treacherous. Well, in any case, so lots of easy topics this morning, like final judgment, hell, um, lots of stuff that is 
very, very comfortable for all of us. So, these are really, really important topics. And so, they're going to require a lot of sensitivity and nuance. But this entire section is also sort of united around one theme. And that theme is how the kingdom comes. So, if you're a note taker, I would actually jot down that question, even, in your notes today, just to sort of keep it at the forefront of our minds. This whole section is going to be describing the way the kingdom comes. So again, lots to cover, and lots to cover that that requires a lot of nuance and sensitivity. And so I want to open in prayer for us, and also just uh, for myself. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, help us to understand this passage in a way that changes our lives. Pray, God, that you would help me to be sort of cued into where folks are at this morning, and and that you would make me careful to careful with my words. I pray that, that whatever I say this morning that is inaccurate, that you, would, um, that you would bring that to light after the sermon. And that whatever I say that is in keeping with your word, that you would impress it on our hearts, and that we'd be changed by it, and ultimately that it would roll up to, to your glory. Amen. So there's lots of optical illusions in the world. Um, you guys have probably run into something like this. It's there, there's a number of illusions where, depending on how you look at the picture, it could appear to be one thing, and it could also appear to be another. So a really common one that you might see are the two heads facing each other, and the sort of the profile of their faces makes a cup, right? So depending on how you're looking at it, it's either a cup or, or it's not a cup, right? It's two faces. So there's one that is really, really difficult for, for me to see the second image, right? It was, I saw one recently where if you look at it, it looks like a picture of a young woman, and she's sort of got her face faced away from you, so you see sort of the bottom half of her jawline and the back of her head. Have you seen, guys seen this one? You guys familiar? Okay. So I only, I'm late to the party on this one, apparently. So I saw this this week. But for me, if, if Google had not told me that it was an optical illusion, I would have just gone right past it. But because I knew it was an optical illusion, I, I knew that I needed to sit there and figure out what the other image was, and it turns out that it's an old woman, that the, that the young woman, the, something about sort of her neck and where the necklace is, you can, once you look at it a certain way, it appears to be an old woman sort of looking down to the, the bottom right of the, of the frame. Now, here's the thing about that image for me. When I, when I saw it, it took me a good minute to even find the old woman. And then even when I found it, it took this, like, decided effort to keep seeing it. it like, my mind just kept on recategorizing what I was seeing, so I kept switching back. But over time, over a couple of minutes, I was able to train my eyes so that I could see it or, or not see it. So I sort of developed the eyes to see what was in the picture. And what we're going to find today is that the kingdom is a lot like that. It's easy to miss. From one perspective... Following Jesus looks like loss. From another, it looks like gain. From another perspective, following Jesus can look like weakness, and then from another, like victory. From one perspective, it looks like giving up your identity, and from another, it looks like finding it. And, and it's far too easy for us to have our eyes trained by all sorts of stuff and to not have our eyes trained to see the kingdom. And so today, what we're going to find is that disciples need to develop eyes to see the hidden kingdom, and we're going to find three facts 
that train us to, to see the hidden kingdom. So first, the, the first fact is that the hidden kingdom shares the same space as its opposition. The hidden kingdom shares the same space as its opposition. Let's reread verses 24 to 30. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore fruit, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to, them, said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus is telling a new parable. It's also sort of an agricultural parable. We saw something similar like that last week. We've got another sower. But this time the focus isn't on the soil. Last week our our parable was very much about what it means to be a true disciple. Today instead we've got this whole narrative playing out and it shows the way the kingdom comes. It's telling how the kingdom comes. And so to understand the significance of this parable, we've got to sort of understand some of the expectations of people living in the first century. So as a Jew living in the first century, I'd be living under Roman occupation. And what would I think of when I thought of Messiah? What would I think of when I thought of Messiah? So one word that would come to mind right away would actually be the word obvious. That, that the coming of the Messiah, on some level, would be obvious. And here's what I mean by that. In the minds of most of the Jews, the coming of the Messiah actually meant more than just political overthrow. It meant more than just political overthrow. It meant the end of the world as we know it. Okay, let me explain. So about 200 years prior to this moment in, in Matthew, the, the Jews were you know, under the rule of the Seleucids, and this guy named Judas Maccabeus rose. You probably have heard of the book of Maccabees, right? So this guy, Judas Maccabeus, rises up and overthrows the oppressor, right? Like, gathers up all these Jews together, overthrows the oppressor, and all these people are saying, like, man, this might be Messiah, right? This Judas guy might actually be Messiah. But by the end of his life, no one was talking about him as though he was Messiah. So why is that? They got political overthrow. So what was missing with Judas? Here's what was missing. The coming of the Messiah was meant to be more than overthrow. It was supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. It was supposed to usher in the, like, the new age in some sense. And because Judas didn't bring in that kingdom, he couldn't possibly be Messiah. So one of the texts that, that you'd run into a lot about Messiah's coming would be Daniel 12. Daniel 12. So this is an Old Testament book, lots of, of prophecy. And there's this mysterious figure called the Son of Man, and he shows up. And in the final chapter of the, the book, you get this moment where it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, shall shine like the brightness of the sun above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So you get this text of the Son of Man, this Messiah figure, this representative of Israel showing up 
and he ushers in the end of human history. So there's this final judgment, the ending of the old age, the beginning of the new. It's the moment the kingdom of God is established. And what we see, even in that Daniel passage, is this like separation taking place. The people of God are separated from the remainder of humanity. And those who sided with the kingdom of God are preserved, and those who allied themselves with hell become outsiders. So if you're here and you're still exploring Christianity, my apologies that you showed up on Hell Week. Trust me, it's way more uncomfortable for me than for you. So anyways, so Messiah comes. No, we're going to learn a lot today. This is good. So anyways, as, like Messiah is supposed to come, and the new creation is supposed to come with him. All things are meant to be restored. No more evil of any kind. The kingdom of heaven arrives. That was the expectation. But then Jesus shows up, and he's doing a whole lot of stuff that Messiah would do, right? He's healing people. He's reinterpreting the entire scripture that came before him. He's, He's gathering back in sort of a true Israel. So Jesus is doing all these things that really, really seems like Messiah. He says he's, that the dawn of the new age is beginning with him, but what seems to be missing at this moment when he's telling this parable? The new age, right? The new age appears to be missing. The whole judgment, the end of history thing, and like the expulsion of evil, all that, that stuff. Like the, the crowds and the disciples have got to be thinking, if this Jesus really expects us to believe he's Messiah, then he needs to bring about the kingdom. And Jesus tells him he already is. Jesus tells them he already is ushering in the kingdom. In this parable, we see the sower. And Jesus later says that this is the Son of Man. This is that figure from the book of Daniel that ushers in sort of the the final chapter of history. And the sower plants wheat. And we're told the wheat represents those who, who follow him. But we're also told that in the middle of the good seeds, weeds get sown by an enemy. And so the, the servants ask the master of the house, should we uproot these weeds? In other words, they're asking, is this the right time? Is this the right time to uproot the weeds in order to separate the weeds and the wheat? And the sower says, no, the time's not right. The harvest is the right time, which means the weeds and the weeds, or the wheat and the weeds will grow together. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. He is this end times Messiah come to bring in the new age of creation, but it's not going to be this nice clean break between one age and the next. Instead, there's going to be overlap. And the people of God are going to be relaunched right in the middle of the darkness. So how will the church mark itself out? What's going to be different about the church? It's interesting to realize that the weeds in mind here are probably one kind of weed called darnel. So darnel is a type of weed. And darnel, as it's growing, looks exactly like wheat. Looks exactly like wheat. And it plays into the parable, because you'll notice that, that the moment that the wheat and the weeds are set apart, it says that when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared. That the moment that the wheat and the weeds could be differentiated was because the wheat started bearing fruit. The wheat had a particular productivity, right? In some ways, the the wheat did something. It bore fruit. 
Jesus brings together a new people to be a colony of the coming kingdom. This church becomes kind of like a colony, like there's this greater kingdom that's sending out a colony into the world to represent everything that that kingdom is. So it goes before the kingdom, and it acts as this community where you can catch a glimpse, or rather that you should be able, this isn't always the case among God's people, but you should be able to catch a glimpse of the way the world will be when God brings things to an end and heaven is ushered in. And so this is a touchy analogy, right? I was, hesitant, I was like hesitant to use it because colonialism is real and its history in our country has left a lot of devastation, but the colony of the church doesn't function like any colony we've ever heard of. It doesn't advance through militarism or through conquest. It doesn't try to establish itself as a political power or rather it shouldn't, it bears fruit. And what does that mean? It means that the gospel changes hearts. It means that as people trust in Jesus, the love of God changes them, and they become people who march to a different drum. They bear fruit. The church is a community that has been changed by the love of Jesus to follow the way of Jesus. And it does it through love, through forgiveness, through hope. It does it through confronting the evils in our community and acting as a healing force. And, and it all comes out of one thing. It comes out of organizing our lives around Jesus. We organize around the gospel. Like the church becomes a different people because we are organizing ourselves around the fact that, that in our darkness, in our rebellion, in our poopiness as people, right? God has loved us when we were unlovable, and we organize ourselves around this. That the church is a group of broken, imperfect failures that God has loved in the cross of Christ, and that should change us in a way where we begin to see people around us differently. We begin to see the world differently. We begin to follow the way of Jesus because it is the right way. You don't bear fruit in order to receive the gospel, but because you've received it. The wheat bears fruit. I think Jesus included that detail because that's going to be true of the people of God, or rather it should be. I'll tell you why I don't think he included that detail. I don't think he included that detail to, like, give us more ammo to judge people, right? Like, he's not giving us this detail so that we can then go out there and be like, that dude's not bearing enough fruit. He must be a weed. Like, clearly, that is not why Jesus would include this. He gave it to us so that as we follow Jesus and help each other follow Jesus, we can sort of hold each other accountable, hold ourselves accountable to hold on to grace. He said it so that we can always remember that we shouldn't expect to be the majority culture either. The followers of Jesus aren't going to be the majority culture. The hidden kingdom will grow in the same space as its opposition. Secondly, the hidden kingdom is growing even when it doesn't seem like it. Verses 31 to 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. 
that a woman took in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So Jesus tells two parables here, and they're both basically communicating the same idea. So in the first one, a man plants a mustard seed, and if you haven't seen a mustard seed, they are very, very small, like head of a pin. So after the guy plants the seed, that seed is entirely invisible, right? It is tiny. My expectations, if I were to see a seed that small, would not be that it's going to produce a really big plant. But, but there's something more that Jesus is doing with this parable. So as soon as the character in this parable plants that seed, Jesus has us thinking about perspective. See what I mean? When that, plant is, when that seed is in the ground, I can walk over that soil and not even realize that I've just walked over a garden. Because underneath the soil, that seed is beginning to soften. It's starting to crack. And out of that seed, a sprout is beginning to reach out and up, and it's pushing the soil to either side, sending roots out beneath it. All this activity is taking place. And even when it pops out of the soil, right, even when it comes out of the ground, it's still going to appear so small. And, and I can't just sit there and watch it like in a time-lapse photography thing, like, you know, just rise up. Over time, it will, it will happen when I don't even notice it until finally it's the biggest tree in the garden, or rather shrub. The, the mustard plant is more like a, a big shrub. So the tiny unseen beginnings. Same with the leaven in the dough. So a woman takes some yeast and she puts it into dough, and that yeast is entirely unseen. All its activity is invisible to me. But slowly, over time, it begins to chew away at the sugars in the dough, and finally that dough begins to expand. So slowly that if I'm just watching, I probably won't notice it. Jesus is saying the kingdom is the same way. Many of us, we, we, we try to see sort of like proof that the kingdom is advancing. And we look to the wrong places. So a big example of this, I think that oftentimes we look to politics or the culture at large to measure whether or not the kingdom is advancing. And, and, and therefore we get anxious, right? Because like, things are, aren't, aren't great. Like, so we say to ourselves, man, like, our country is veering in some really discouraging ways. There's rampant inju- injustice and corruption in our government, whatever. If the government isn't Christian, then what hope is there for Christianity? And I would just remind us I'm going to take a couple minutes to expand on this. I would just remind us that Jesus doesn't need human government to help him build the kingdom. He doesn't need human government to help him build the kingdom. What we're seeing in the West is the decline of what many folks call Christendom. So are you guys familiar with this term, Christendom? So a lot of you have probably heard the phrase. Christendom is when sort of the values and ideas of the Christian scriptures inform the way a culture operates. So you talk about like Judeo-Christian values and stuff like that. A lot of that is, is Christendom. We're talking about Christendom culture. And so for our founders, most of our founders weren't Christians. They're actually deists and some atheists and then a couple Christians, but for the most part deists. But they were still living very much in a Christendom culture, right? This culture sort of informed by the Hebrew and, and Christian scriptures. And so the, the ideas of the Bible play a big role. And Christendom... This, this phenomena of Christendom, it has done a lot of good things. A lot of good things. Some things would have been impossible without Christendom. And one thing that did for, for a while is it made discipleship kind of easier culturally. Christendom, this Christian culture, made discipleship a little bit easier. Made it more comfortable. 
But we should be very clear on the fact that it didn't make discipleship possible. Something else makes discipleship possible. So to illustrate, most folks, I think this is right. What do I know? I'm not a historian, so I'm taking folks' words at it. But most folks think Christendom begins with the Emperor Constantine. So are you guys familiar with Constantine? He was this early Roman emperor, 3rd century A.D., and he was the guy that legalized Christianity. So at that point, Christianity sort of become, becomes this like cultural phenomenon, right? But previous to that, on and off, Christianity was banned by other Roman emperors. Some of them launched crazy intense persecutions on, on Christians. And so with the Edict of Milan, 313 AD, Constantine announces that Christianity is legal. And, and most historians say that's the launch of Christendom. From, from that moment on, what you start to see is the state and the faith sort of starting to intertwine, right? It's hard to, hard to tease them apart. And, and, and good came of it. But here's the thing. You could look at that moment and think, without Christendom, Christianity would have been impossible. The government changed, and so people started following Jesus. The culture changed, and so people started following Jesus. But that's the wrong story. Christendom didn't make discipleship happen. Discipleship made Christendom happen. And discipleship will go on long after Christendom has ended. The kingdom was growing discreetly in the first three centuries. Jesus was building his church, and he was doing it as as, as Christians followed him through just simple acts of love and hospitality. It spread slowly. And oftentimes it spread because the most overlooked members of society, slaves, women, they found a voice and a home among the people of God. And so the weak in society found a place where they belonged and were affirmed and had a a valuable role to play. And so Christianity spread, and it spread, not through all these giant big gestures most of the time, but just through the simple, humble acts of love as God's people lived the shape of the gospel. And Christianity spread, and it became so big, so big that it became politically impossible to ignore the movement. And so Constantine had a choice, right? Constantine could either go the way of all his predecessors and try to stamp out this thing that seemed to multiply more the more pressure was put on it, or he could legalize it. And so he was kind of a political genius. He legalized it. So what you've got to ask is this. Did the government need to back Christianity for Jesus to build his kingdom? Jesus was building his kingdom long before the government backed it. And if you'd been watching the progress of Christianity in Rome, if you were trying to take the pulse of culture to try to figure out, like, how, how's the kingdom doing? What's its vital signs like? If you were trying to measure its growth and, and just looking at what's happening, you'd be like, there is no way the kingdom is growing. These people are being killed. And yet Jesus was building his church the whole time. At the end of the day, our hope is not in the state. And here's the truth as well. Christendom has done a lot of good, but it's also done a lot of evil. And a lot of times what you get are folks in the middle of Christendom baptizing evils in in Christian language in order to justify them. So even when the state is Christianized, even when you've got Christendom culture, it doesn't mean it's Christian. 
even in our own nation. Many of our founding documents are explicitly, they just assume that God exists. They sort of oftentimes assume even Christian ideals. But if you had been walking around the United States at the beginning, you would have seen self-professing Christians justifying themselves into enslaving people, into pushing indigenous peoples back off their lands. You would have seen them building an entire economy on the backs of people of color. And they would have called it a Christian nation. So we have to ask the question, how Christian was that Christian nation? It was not in keeping with the way of Jesus. And if you had looked at that nation, you would say, there's no way the kingdom is growing here. But right in the middle of that, as it was in early Rome, Christianity was still growing. And it was largely growing among the slaves. Jesus didn't need the state to build his church. What I'm trying to demonstrate is that the kingdom is growing even when you don't see it. And in the end, all governments will cease except one, and it will not be a democracy. If you are looking to politics to tell you how the kingdom is going and you're discouraged, it's not because the kingdom isn't growing. It's because you're looking in the wrong place. The kingdom is operating now. So we ask, how then? How is it actually growing? The kingdom moves discreetly. If you're sitting here and, and you're somebody who, who loves Jesus, but you've got this sense of inadequacy, you feel like you're not extraordinary enough to be a part of what he's doing, you just feel like you're not enough, you're not cool enough or smart enough or resourced enough or... Whatever. I'm here to tell you that you are not irrelevant. But just as it was in Rome, the kingdom grows as you just follow Jesus. Just through simple acts of love, hospitality, forgiveness, openness about your own shortcomings. Super rare. The kingdom will grow as you just do what Jesus says. Love him and remember always that he loves you. That is how the kingdom grows. It happens as God's people gather around the gospel, remind each other of it, lean into each other, tell their friends. It happens through humble, simple obedience and the announcement of good news. And sometimes the culture will be against us, and churches will be small, and at other times there will be revival, and, but in the middle of it, the kingdom will be found as followers of the king delight in him and do what he says. The kingdom of heaven is growing even when it doesn't seem like it, and finally, the kingdom of heaven won't always be hidden. So let's reread Jesus' explanation of the parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. 
The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So here's what we've learned so far about how the kingdom grows. It grows right alongside the opposition. It grows right alongside evil, and it grows discreetly. But these two things will not always be the case. So here at the end of the parable, Jesus describes this moment of the harvest. The wheat and the weeds are separated the weeds are gathered together into bundles and thrown into what Jesus describes as the fiery furnace. And then you have this moment where, where the wheat are truly sort of vindicated. They're, they're shown to have been the wheat, right? And, and the way that he describes this is, is like shining like the sun in the, in, in, was it? shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father, which is an echo of that Daniel passage, right? So we, we've got this final judgment moment. What's being described here? It's important to describe what's going on because the truth is that many, many Christians are more informed about the judgment by Dante's Inferno and the mass media than they are about the Bible. And so it's important for us to take a second to talk about this very uncomfortable topic, more uncomfortable than it ever has been, so that we really know what's going on here. Like we sort of, this is how we kind of imagine things, right? At the end of human history, what we see around us, the earth, it's going to get just like full-on evacuated, right? So it's just evacuated, everything burns, and then there's these two sort of spiritual destinations that you can go to. You know, they're non-physical. We often think of them as like non-physical. And the one that you want to go to is the cloud city named Heaven, and there's like sort of Roman architecture and white marble and this really gaudy gold trim. It's like just, it's not great aesthetically, but that's okay, right? Because it's better than the alternative. The other spiritual place is this subterranean torture chamber called hell. So there's some truth to what I described just now. Your choices as a human being matter. What you have organized your life around matters. And your destiny will be consistent with your life. So that's, that's the kernel that's good here. But like most half-truths, what I've just described does just as much harm as good. The mission of Jesus is not to bring us to heaven. You've heard me say this before. It's not to bring us to heaven, but to bring heaven to us. The problem with this world is that humanity has unleashed sin and evil and, and death into this place. That we brought the curse on ourselves and the reason why is because we chose to assert our own meaning into creation. We chose to reject the rule of heaven. In other words, we, we said that we want to operate autonomously. We're very into self-governance, right? We want to operate autonomously. We would rather not operate with God. We would prefer to operate in, in the absence of God. So we rejected the rule of heaven. Heaven is withdrawn. And so we welcomed hell. Hell is the absence of God. And it is what we have all chosen 
almost by default. Hell is the result of what humans wanted. Humans wanted existence without God. Hell is us getting our wish. And we glimpse hell every day. We glimpse it in the rampant sex trafficking that is happening right here in our own county. We see it in the brutal genocides of the 20th century. We see it in domestic violence. We see it in the widespread harm done to the unborn. Like we're seeing that right now with this recently and particularly grotesque legislation. We see it in our own hearts. No exception. But God is better than we are. God is more good than we are. He loves this world more than we do. And as, as one author p- points out, we can all agree that like sex trafficking is bad and genocide is bad, and God agrees, but he's not just removing sex trafficking. He wants to remove the root that caused it. God is going after lust. He doesn't just want to eliminate genocide in the world. God wants to eliminate the pride that caused it. So as that author puts it, the the good news of the gospel is that God is coming to get the hell out of earth and get the hell out of you. Right? He's He's a good writer. Don't agree with everything he said, but that one was good. That was good. The kingdom of heaven is coming. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we stand here and we see what God is about and we still refuse to trust in Jesus and let Jesus make us clean, then we hold on to the hell in our hearts. And there is not enough room on this earth for heaven and hell to share the same space. If you look at what's coming, the the reunion of heaven and earth, and you say, I don't want to live under God's rule, then you hold on to his absence. You hold on to hell. And the painful message of the scriptures is that in the end, hell will have no share here. And so all the causes of sin will be put outside. And everyone who holds on to it, hell will be put outside. We won't be at home here anymore. Now, what that means concretely, we don't completely know. Here's the interesting thing. There are moments in the scriptures where where the new creation is talked about in really concrete terms. The moment where heaven and earth comes together is sometimes talked about in really concrete terms. And you know, I once heard that someone asked a rabbi, what will what will the new creation be like? And he said, like this, but different. <laughs> right? That like There's something, obviously much that's unimaginable, but something that we can kind of put our hooks into and and understand about the idea of like this place being renewed, heaven and earth reuniting. Hell is unimaginable. We have no frame of reference for what it is actually like for God to entirely withdraw his presence and his rule. And so what you're going to find in the scriptures is that hell is to my knowledge, unanimously talked about through metaphor. That doesn't mean hell doesn't exist. It means that's unlike anything we've ever experienced. And so here we, we have the images of the fiery furnace and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
again, I don't know how much of this is communicating a literal experience, but what we're supposed to understand is that hell is sort of the end result of us holding on to it. That, like, the, the image in my mind is almost of, like, all of us holding on to our autonomy, our independence, and, you know, and it's like this big blob of, like, dark garbage, and as heaven comes in, that, that's slowly just moved off creation into some unimaginable place, whatever that means. Whatever it means, we don't want it. <laughs> and there are people all around us, some of you maybe, maybe even me, holding on to hell. And we desperately need Jesus. So what really separates the wheat and the weeds? What kind of person ends up in the new creation? And who ends up outside? It doesn't come down to who's more religious. It doesn't come down to who's more spiritual. It doesn't even come down to who's more moral. Because the Pharisees were very religious. And Jesus castigated them. Good works do not get us in. There are many generally good people in the world, but who can possibly live in such a way that we are fit for the world God is ushering in? No one. As Christians, we believe that the folks who will find themselves in the new creation are those who see Jesus as their ultimate hope. We look to Jesus to bring us forgiveness for the ways that we have sided with hell. We look to him to make a place for us in his father's house, despite our weakness, despite our shortcomings. We look to him as the only one who can make us fit for new creation. Here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that Jesus' grace is something he gives us so that we're kind of like, now freed to work at it ourselves, right? Like, Jesus' grace isn't this thing that, like, gives us the head start we need to pull ourselves together. That's not what grace is. This whole journey, as a Christian, is a journey of grace upon grace upon grace as we daily follow the one in whom forgiveness is found. And our lives will bear fruit. Good works will be the result of our salvation precisely because we know they aren't the cause of our salvation. And so hold on to heaven. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Hold on to him who is the beginner and the finisher of your faith. Lean into his grace to walk away from the darkness you might be holding on to. Seek his forgiveness as old habits are broken. Seek his comfort in the face of fear and grief and unbelief. Find him through his people when you feel like you can't go on and join with his people as God uses us to storm the gates of hell itself. Even in our brokenness. Even in our inadequacy. Be sheltered in Christ. Hold firm in Christ. Be found in Christ. Put on Christ. Live by Christ. Abide in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you 
care even more about this world than we do. And that you care more about us than even we do. So Lord, I, I ask that you would move us to seek forgiveness in you. That we would live every day by grace. And we thank you that you have provided everything that we do not have to earn our way. We don't have to qualify ourselves to being a part of your movement in the world, but you have qualified us. And I thank you, Lord, that you are going to restore all things. And I only ask that you come quickly. Amen.